You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. refused to answer some of the questions that uh, he was putting to him, that his pilot was putting to Christ. He says, don't you know that I have the power to, to either put you to death or to release you? And how did Jesus respond to it? You have no power except that which is given to you by my Father who is in heaven, right? But all of this was done voluntarily, you see. This was a part of his commitment. And he never moved. He never flinched from doing the will of the Father, though tempted and weakened. Are you committed to following the Lord's will in your life? As you listen to today's message from Pastor Mike, he shares with you the important truth that Jesus never turned his back on following after the will of his Father. He provides you the perfect model of inspiration to look to whenever you feel like giving up. Pastor Mike encourages you to not give up. Don't surrender following after the Lord just because it gets hard. Jesus was tempted and weakened, but continually placed the Lord's will first. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 as he begins his message, God's Work of Art. I remember what you said, you returned that I might live in my God's workmanship. Now, the key words here in our text, there in verse 10, is His workmanship. We are God's workmanship. Now, the word workmanship, the English word translated workmanship, comes from a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is uh, poema. Actually, I'm sorry, uh, it's a Greek word, poema, and it literally means work of art. So, therefore, the implication then is God is the one who is doing the work in us. We are his workmanship, but God is the one who is doing the work in us. And listen, God is the master artist. God is the creative genius. And he has a knack for constructing the most wonderful of creations. Think about it. Go back to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, right from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, in verse 1, we are told there that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The word created, by the way, is a very interesting uh, word. And the implication there uh, is quite spectacular. Our English word that's translated created, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, is translated from a Hebrew word, and that Hebrew word is the word bara, 
B-A-R-A, which means, and this is the reason why it's so spectacular, which means to make something from nothing. And only God has that capacity. Only God has that ability. And I just want to depart from the text for a moment just to draw your attention to something. Have you ever felt like, you know, I, I really have nothing to offer God? There's really nothing in me to offer God that God can use for his glory. Well, the truth be told is then you're the best candidate for God getting a hold of you and doing that work in and through your lives. Because, you see, he has the ability to work with nothing, even if you have nothing to offer the Lord, right? How cool is that? So I definitely wanted to, you know, touch on that idea and, uh, and, and you know, draw your attention to it. And, you know, to contrast this, but let me give you another example. Like, for example, a carpenter, and I'll use him as an example of this. Uh, he gets hold of a piece of lumber, right? A piece of wood. And then he cuts it. And then he molds it. And then he shapes it. Uh, he'll... Uh, sand it, he'll paint it, he'll varnish it, and let's say, for example, make it into a piece of furniture, right? But you see, the a carpenter has materials to work with. God doesn't need any materials uh, to work with, right? And so from nothing, God created all that is contained within the physical universe. The Bible tells us, for example, that he created the firmament uh, there also in Genesis chapter 1, or the heavens, and all of the creatures that dwell therein. For example, the angelical host, the cherubims, the seraphims, the archangels, etc., all in different rankings, authorities, and ministries. We are also uh, told that God created our solar system, the sun with its group of celestial bodies that are held by its attraction and revolve around it. He also created our own Milky Way galaxy, we know. But isn't it interesting? Recently, scientists and astronomers have told us, because of all of the new technology that they possess with telescopes and such, and, and uh, not only is there our one Milky Way galaxy, but scientists and astronomers have now discovered that there are as millions or rather billions of other galaxies as well. And within each one of those systems, they include stars, nebulae, immense bodies of gas and dust, globular clusters, interstellar matter that make up our universe. And then they created the Earth and all of its landmass with a delicate balance which allows it to be habitable by life forms. For example, he created the sea to collect and neutralize pollutants. And the seas on the earth cover three-quarters of its surface, all of which is a part of God's plan and delicate balance. Then he created all life form and all of its variety of species and intelligence, plant, animal, and mankind. Listen, God is the master artist in the truest sense and highest use of the word. And I love that portion of scripture, and I often refer to it 
in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 and verse 17, and now getting back to you. Therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creation. All things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Now, let's just kind of trip on that for a moment, if you will. And, and let me uh, provide me the opportunity to be able to, to do that. In the spiritual recreation, God the master artist, and uh, creating, uh, you are his workmanship. I want you to think about this in this respect. In the spiritual recreation, what has God done for us? Well, God gives us, think about it, among so many things, God gives us a new set of senses. Before, we saw with our eyes physically, but we were spiritually blind. But now we see with spiritual eyes, and everything is so brand new. Isn't that true? I mean, think about it. Before our conversion experience, back in our BC days, right? Think about it. We had no inclination, uh, aptitudes for the things of God. We weren't concerned about that. We were just kind of motivated and driven by the things of the flesh, earthly things, temporal things, right? But now God has given us a Christian's worldview. And we see things quite differently, don't we, Uh, today? Before our thinking was darkened, we called the good bad, and we called the bad good. Indeed, we reveled in the bad, and we could not understand what was wrong when the supposed good times turned out to be bad times, and we were left feeling miserable. The things of God's Spirit were foolishness to us, but now our thinking has been changed. We evaluate things differently, and our minds are being renewed day by day. This is a part of all of the new creation, all of what God is doing within us and through us. Then also, before our hearts were hard, we hated God. We did not even care very much for others. Now our hearts are softened. God appears altogether lovely, and what he loves, we love. We love because he first loved us, we are told. Because our hearts have been remade, we now give food to the hungry and water to the thirsty, homes to strangers, clothes to the naked. We care for the sick and we comfort those who are in prison, as Jesus said we must do if we are to sit with him in glory. So think about what God is doing in and through our lives. This is all a part of that new creation, right? That new creature, that new creature that God uh, has created within us. Truly, we are his workmanship. We are his work of art. Now that brings us to our second point this morning, and that is God the artist. It's a little warm in here, isn't it? God the artist. So if you're taking notes, write this down. God the artist. Now under this heading, a couple of things that I want to draw to your attention. As an artist creates and tell me if this isn't true, after the service, he likes to express himself in his work. He seeks to portray himself, his qualities, his emotions, communicating his thoughts through his work. And isn't that the artist's signature? Isn't that the artist's style? Let me ask you a question. What makes a Picasso a Picasso? 
What makes a Salvatore Dali a Salvatore Dali? Well, all of these things that I've just suggested. Now, in the same way, I want you to think about this. We are God's canvas. And as he begins to construct the perfect picture, he, as is true of all artists, has a definite end in mind. What the final work of art will look like. I mean, think about it. You know, he has some kind of a concept of what he wants to create in whatever form of art, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, molding and shaping a lump of clay or uh, taking a, a brush and, and I, with each stroke on the canvas. They, the artist has a definite end in mind, even before he launches out and begins his work. So what is it that God is create? What's the final work of art that, that God is creating? What will that look like? Well, the Bible gives us the indication and answers that question for us. In the book of Romans, for example, in chapter 8 and verse 29, we are told, for whom he did foreknow, that would be you and me, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so that final work of art will look like his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so uh, for illustration's sake, let's suppose, just to make the point, an example, we've received an invitation in the mail for us to join others at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which happens to be my favorite museum, and uh, for the unveiling of Jehovah's newest work. Guess what it's titled? It's titled Mike Finizio. And thus we've all gathered together around and we're anxiously awaiting for the veil to be lifted. And when it is, we're surprised. Guess what? It doesn't look like Mike Finizio at all. But it's a lot better. It's a portrait of Jesus Christ. So what's God looking to portray, to convey his son, Jesus Christ, in and through us. But here's the problem. There are many misconceptions about what Christians should look like. But listen, Christ is the standard. And don't measure Christianity by any other. I mean, think about the very name, Christian, and what that refers to. You know, uh, early on, before the word Christian was even coined, they would refer to Christians as those of the way. In fact, uh, that's the way that they are recommended to us in the book of Acts. Those of the, the way, the way of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? And that's the way that they would refer to them. It was later on where the term Christian was coined. And where did that word come from? Literally, it means Christ in us. In other words, there should be an absence in us and a very real presence of Christ. People shouldn't be able to see, well, you know, they they should look right through Mike Finizio and see Jesus Christ more than anything else, you see. And And that's where the word Christian comes from. And so that's what God is looking to portray through you and through me, Christ in us. But again, there's the problem. Many people have misconceptions about what Christians should look like. But make no mistake about it, Christ is the standard. And don't measure Christianity by any other.
Now that leads us to the, our next point this morning, and if you're taking notes, write this down. Let's talk about the character of Christ. Let's talk about some of the things that mark Christ, that stand out about him. Now let's look into the character of Christ so that we can understand what the Father is looking for in and through our lives. And, you know, I mean, this is an inexhaustible subject. So this morning, we're not going to be able to go through an entire list, but I want to uh, take a look at two particular aspects, uh, although that they are many, the characteristics of Christ. There's so many wonderful sides of Jesus. He was truly the perfect man in every way. But just for the sake of brevity, let's focus in on two specific characteristics that mark Jesus Christ. The first characteristic that I want to emphasize this morning was Christ's commitment to his Father. Let me give you a couple of cross-references for this. In John's Gospel, in chapter 6, in verse 38, there we are told, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Now this is Jesus speaking. The idea here is that voluntarily submitting himself to the will of God the Father in his great plan of salvation. And this was determined before in the councils of God, before the foundations of the world, the Bible tells us. Now let me ask you this question. What did that commitment cost Jesus? Well, think about it. From birth, they sought to kill him. As an adult, they ridiculed him. They mocked him. The Bible tells us in the Gospel according to Luke, in chapter 9, in verse 58, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, that is Jesus, has nowhere to lie down his head. And then finally, they got hold of him and scourged him. They tortured him, and then they crucified him. Why? All because of his commitment to God the Father and his plan of redemption for mankind. And at any time, Jesus could have put an end to that horrendous injustice. He he could have called down legions of angels to to go to battle for him, but he didn't do that. I mean, think about that horrendous injustice. We're talking about the killing of God. In John's Gospel in chapter 10, in verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down, notice, voluntarily, I lay down my life, that I may take it again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me. So, you know, actually, it would be wrong to suggest, if you think about it, you know, the Jews really get a bad rap. I mean, no doubt that Satan used them uh, as his puppet uh, to bring this whole thing about in one respect. But, you know, if you think about it, this this is something that, as I've already mentioned, was already determined in the counsels of God before the foundations of the world. This had to happen. Uh, The one who is righteous dying in our place for the unrighteous, right? And uh, so no one takes it from me. He laid it down voluntarily. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. You know, Pontius Pilate was also another fellow who was confused about this whole idea of taking Christ's life from him. And uh, he had, had, Jesus responded to Pilate when Pilate became a little infuriated and, and Jesus refused to answer some of the questions that uh, he was putting to him, that his Pilate was putting to Christ. 
And uh, he says, don't you know that I have the power to, to either put you to death or to release you? And how did Jesus respond to it? You have no power except that which is given to you by my Father who is in heaven, right? But all of this was done voluntarily, you see. This was a part of his commitment. And he never moved. He never flinched from doing the will of the Father, though tempted and weakened. You know, I'm reminded of that portion of Scripture. It's going to also be broadcast up here on the screen in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 4, in verses 8 through 10. Now, let me set this up for you. Uh, after he was found down in the Jordan River and what some people refer to as being baptized by John the Baptist. I don't really know if Jesus was baptized because he was sinless. That's what baptism was all about. Uh, I kind of lean more towards, although I could be wrong, people have suggested that Jesus was baptized for the sins of the world, which is a possible explanation of what was going on there. Uh, My personal belief was that that was the beginning of his being consecrated for his priestly ministry, as was true under the Levitical law. They would consecrate the priests at the beginning of their ministries in water. And so, you know, my personal belief, I I lean more towards that interpretation. And that's what was going on down at the Jordan River when he was baptized by uh, John the Baptist. But immediately following, what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us that he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, and he fasted there for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was tempted by the devil. Three times he was tempted by the devil. And the last temptation was probably the most subtle and the most powerful. And now we pick up there in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 4 and verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. In verse 9. And he said to them, all these things I will give you. Now, this is interesting. Could he possibly have given? I mean, did he actually, uh, was he over all of these kingdoms? Did he possess these kingdoms? And could he actually offer them to Jesus Christ? I don't know. That's a good question. That's a a question that I really can't answer, that no one could really answer. Uh, But we do know that the Bible tells us that he is the prince of this world, right? So it is possible. I mean, if you think about it, he is in control of all of the things that are going on in the world today. Uh, You know, what will be gained after the church is raptured and just prior to the seven years of tribulation beginning when the title deed to earth, which is that scroll that's handed to Jesus there in heaven, I believe that that title deed to earth was lost in the Garden of Eden through Adam and Eve's disobedience. So he's going to once again be able to gain what was lost through sin and disobedience. In my father's house, there's a place for me. In my father's house. As we study the book of Ephesians together, we pray it has encouraged you to restore relationships. Unity can be such a hard task to accomplish, but as the Apostle Paul wrote, unity binds us together in Jesus. If there's someone in your life that you need to reach out to today, know we are praying both for you and for them. 
You've been listening to In My Father's House, and we're so glad you tuned in to hear today's teaching with Pastor Mike. To listen to today's message again, or to hear more from Pastor Mike, just search for In My Father's House on your favorite podcast platform, and be sure to subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram to keep up to date on our day-to-day happenings. If you're looking for a place in Midtown Manhattan to come together with others and worship Jesus, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday for worship at Harvest Christian Fellowship. You'll be able to reserve your seat and get directions to our easy access point at harvestnyc.org. We're also streaming each Sunday and Thursday evening so everyone has the chance to attend, even if you can't make it in person. If this broadcast has been an encouragement to you, would you consider supporting us? We'd love your prayerful support. And if you feel led, we're also thankful for any financial support. In fact, you can donate securely on our website, harvestnyc.org. Again, that was harvestnyc.org. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening in today. Join us again next time for more, right here on In My Father's House. Where I long to be, oh my heart, not be troubled.